I came to the pulpit while Nate was praying and realized I didn't have my microphone on. <laughs> so thanks, John, for scrambling and going ahead and getting that. Go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Jonah. Go ahead and go to Jonah. This is our, let's see, this is our fourth message in the series of Jonah. We're going to be in Jonah chapter 3. So far, what we've seen in Jonah, the, the big idea of the series is that God mercifully pursues his unmerciful messenger in order to reach the lost. We've seen this merciful pursuit of God, God pursuing his unmerciful servant. And he does that in order to reach the lost, not only the lost Ninevites, the lost sailors, but also the lost prophet. In chapter 1, we saw that God relentlessly pursues the lost so that they would call on him. His desire was for Jonah to cry out to God. When he didn't want to go on the mission, when he was in danger in the storm, what Jonah should have done was cry out to God like the sailors cried out to God. In chapter 2, we saw that God delivers his servant even when the growth is small. We saw that God began his deliverance by providing a fish to swallow Jonah so he didn't sink further in his sin and die. We also saw that God delivered Jonah at the end in having the fish vomit Jonah out. And in the middle there, we see this prayer of Jonah, this prayer that has elements that are good. We see some growth in Jonah. And yet at the same time, if we look closer, we see that there's things missing. That Jer Jonah's perspective is narrow. He's not looking at everything. He's not repenting from his sin. He's praising God for salvation. That's good. But he's neglecting to repent from the sin that led him to need to be saved. The harsh reality that we've seen in this series is that Jonah is an idiot. That's not the harsh part. The harsh part is that we are a lot like Jonah. That we have so many areas where we do the exact same thing as Jonah. The book of Jonah serves as a mirror. If you remember, we went through the whole overview and Jonah ends unresolved. We don't know what Jonah is going to do when we reach chapter 4. How does it end? And the reason for that is so that we can use it as a mirror and say, well, how am I going to progress? The two things that we look and our questions for Jonah then turn and become questions for ourselves. Those two questions are, Jonah, will you finally have a heart of mercy for the lost? Will you pity the lost? Jonah, will you finally allow God to accomplish his purpose through you? Or will it continue to happen in spite of you? Those are the two goals that we have for ourselves. Where is our heart of mercy? How has God pursued you through this series to show you, hey, Hillside Haven Community Church, I want you to have hearts of mercy for the lost, to pity the lost. Likewise, the second goal, is God accomplishing his purpose through us? He's using us as willing participants, or is God accomplishing his purposes in spite of us. 
The blessing is that God will accomplish his purposes. But if we want to partake in that blessing, then we need to link up with God, be part of his plan. This morning, as we get to chapter 3, which is really the second part of Jonah, chapters 1 and 2 go together. And now we're, as we look at chapter uh, 3, as John read it earlier this morning, we see that it really starts in a very similar way as chapter 1 did. It's this second part of the series. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go on a journey of mercy. Some of you have read C.S. Lewis's uh, Chronicles of Narnia, and at the very end, the last book called The Last Battle, he has this description of a land where the people who are in that land continue to go further up and further in. And each time they go further up and further in, the land is better than where they were. That's the journey of mercy that we're going to go on today. That we're going to continue going further up and further in. We're going to see three different levels, three different lands of mercy. Each one coming a little closer to the inside. Last week we, uh, we heard from Dr. Merck and he talked about we dug deeper. We looked at that element of pride, looking deeper at God resisting the proud but giving grace to the humble. We're going to see some of those elements today as well as we go on this journey. Now, here's my goal, and this is written in your handout. My goal is that through this expedition, we would be overwhelmed by the immensity of God's mercy, humbled by our need of God's mercy, and encouraged in our reception and proclamation of God's mercy. Now, considering we're talking already so much about mercy, it's probably good for us to kind of define what we're talking about. Mercy is when we do not receive the punishment we deserve. We deserve a punishment, but we don't receive it. That's mercy. For example, if one of you the service ends and you rush to your car because you've got to get out of here and you put it in reverse real fast and you turn around and you don't notice the nose of your car scraping the car next to you and you completely just rip it up across and it's one of the new cars that someone has here and you come in. Now, what should happen, first you should be chastised for trying to leave church so fast. No, I'm kidding. But what should happen, the just thing is for you to pay for the damages. But if the owner of the other car says, you know what, it's okay, insurance will cover, about, cover it, don't worry. That's mercy. You deserve to pay for it, but the owner is not requiring you. He's giving you mercy. He's not giving you the punishment you deserve. Our big idea this morning is that God's mercy is revealed through his word and received through humble repentance. God's mercy is revealed through his word and received through humble repentance. Let's get started on this journey. Let's let's get going on this journey. Let's see what this first land of mercy is. The first land, and this is the blank that you can put in, is the universal land of universal mercy. The first country we are going to see are the inhabitants of the universal recipients 
of God's mercy. Look at verse 1 and 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Jonah, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Our first clue that we are in the land of the universal recipients of mercy is found in God's patience with sinners. Real quick, just, as, just for us to remember, who is God dealing with in chapter 3? Who are the main characters apart from God that we're going to see in chapter 3? Who is it? What's the name of the book? Jonah, there you go. Where's Jonah going? Nineveh, you got it. Okay, those are the two other characters apart from God. What do we know? Let's start with Jonah. What do we know about Jonah so far? Likes to run away. What else? Doesn't like Nineveh. Good. What else? He's a prophet. And what's the job of a prophet? Take the message. What's he not doing? Taking the message. We look at Jonah. Jonah has an element of arrogance. His plan is the right plan. He's not willing to submit to God. We see Jonah's narrow perspective. He's not willing to repent. It leads to a prejudiced perspective. That's who Jonah is right now in chapter 3. How about Nineveh? What is, what's the thing that we know about Nineveh? They're wicked. They're evil. They're enemies of Israel. They are so bad that their evil has come up before the Lord. That's in chapter 1. And he's saying, I'm done with them. Go tell them. Their evil has come up before me. Historians have looked at how Nineveh would do their conquest, and they would go, and they would take the leaders of the cities that they would take over, and they would skin them alive. The soldiers that they captured, they would sharpen large trees and skewer them on the top. This was an evil people. Those are the two people so far that we see. Now, based off of that information, knowing who Jonah is and who Nineveh is, what do we see as a reasonable expectation of what should happen to them? How should God respond to these people? Judgment. Punishment. Condemnation. Would any of us look, if, if the story changed right here, and God condemned Jonah and Nineveh, would any of us blink an eye at that? No. They're guilty. That's what they deserve. Before we move on, we need to understand this crucial foundation for our understanding of mercy. Why do Jonah and Nineveh deserve judgment? Why is it that they're condemned? Because they sinned against a holy and perfect God. That's why their condemnation is justified. That's why their punishment is deserved. They rebelled against their creator. Now here's the question for us. Are they alone in their rebellion? As we read this story, do we look and man, man, those guys, they're pretty bad. No. This is our reality. The reality we need to understand is that the land of universal mercy is also the land of universal condemnation. 
We are all condemned in our sin. We have all sinned against the holy God. So what each and every one of us deserves is the immediate wrath of God. But that's not what Jonah, Nineveh, or what we receive. Instead, they get a second chance. Look, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. God is the God of second chances. He gives Jonah another chance. He told him at the beginning to do something. Jonah said no, but God comes to him and says, Jonah, I'm going to give you another chance. God demonstrates his mercy and his patience with sinners. God demonstrates the same thing with Nineveh. Now we might say, well, wait a second. Nineveh hasn't received a word yet. How is this a second chance for them? Because they've already sinned against the holy God. God sending a word of judgment to them, sending his word, is giving them a second chance to turn. God demonstrates that same mercy to each and every one of us. We all deserve God's punishment. We are all universally condemned. But... If you look around, every single person you see here is the universal recipient of God's mercy. Why? Because we're not already in hell. The fact that God has not already sent us and sent us away to hell is a demonstration of God's universal mercy to us all. It's the demonstration of the God of second chances. The question is, why doesn't God destroy Nineveh? Why doesn't God destroy us? Because God is a God of mercy. He loves to show mercy to us. But he's not content with just this level, this land of mercy. God wants us to go further up and further in. He wants us to leave this, just this universal mercy and come to something better. The question for all of us, if we remember our goals, are we overwhelmed by God's mercy? Are we overwhelmed with God's patience with sinners, meaning God's patience with ourselves? We should be. But not only us here in this room, the entire world should be overwhelmed with God's universal mercy. But why aren't they? Why isn't the world overwhelmed with that? Because even though we are universal recipients of mercy, we are often uninformed recipients of mercy. That's not the next line, by the way, if you're going to fill it in. We don't realize that this is what's happening. But God's going to change that. God's going to take these uninformed recipients of mercy. Nineveh doesn't know. They don't know that this is happening, and God's going to make them informed recipients of mercy. That's your next line. God wants us, the next land, the next place that we go further up and further in, is to be informed recipients of mercy. Let's read this whole part. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the, in the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown." 
And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. God takes them from uninformed recipients of mercy and through his word makes them informed recipients of mercy. Now make no mistake, this entire journey of mercy, this theme that we see is all because of what God is doing. If God does not inform us, if God does not choose to show mercy, then we get none of this. We can't make this happen. But God does inform us. How does he do that? What is the way that he informs us of his mercy? His first step is in revealing himself through his word. God reveals his mercy through his word. Look at what it says even in those first verses. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Go to Nineveh and call out the message that I tell you according to the word of the Lord. Later in verse 6, we'll see that the word reached the king. God takes uninformed recipients and makes them informed recipients of mercy through the revealing of his word. Now, while it's possible for some things to be known about God through general revelation, to know this special showing of God's mercy requires him to reveal himself in a special way, and he does that by giving his word. But here's what's fascinating. And a further demonstration of God's mercy. Who does God use to reveal his word? Who does God use? Jonah. God uses a sinner. God uses a recipient of his mercy to share his mercy. A demonstration of God's mercy is that God uses sinners to accomplish his purposes. We don't deserve that. We deserve to be punished. But God's mercy in still allowing us to be used. God uses Jonah to tell Nineveh to reveal his word. God used sinners to reach each of us. Think back to when you were an uninformed recipient of mercy, to that time when you learned of God's mercy. How did God do that? He used a sinner. He used someone who was a recipient of his mercy to share mercy with you. That's a beautiful image. God wants to use us the same way to share his mercy with others. That's our mission. But here's something we wouldn't expect. We're talking about mercy, and normally we talk about mercy, and, and, it, and we like talking about mercy. Mercy is something that, that's good. But look at the content of God's message. What is the word that God reveals to Nineveh? a message of judgment. Look at what Jonah says in verse 4. Then Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The word that God reveals is a word of judgment. How is that a demonstration of God's Mercy. Why not send a message of repentance? 
or maybe a message of love and forgiveness, maybe a message of hope. Why a message of judgment? Because we cannot recognize God's mercy unless we grasp our condemnation. God's message of judgment is crucial to understanding the mercy he's showing us. If we don't understand what we deserve, how could we ever appreciate what God is holding back? If you don't know that you deserve to be in hell right now, then you'll never appreciate the mercy God is showing you in not sending you right now to hell. The fact that God gave them a message of judgment was a wake-up call. It was a demonstration. This is the mercy I am demonstrating to you right now. Now I want to look at at just a, a quick practical application for all of us. We've talked about as a church that we have a goal this year that we want all each of our members to be sharing the gospel at least once with someone this year. At least once. But here's the trend or the temptation when we share the gospel. The trend or temptation is to go easy on the judgment part. Go easy on the judgment part. Now, if someone says that and they mean human to human judgment, I agree. The gospel does not need human to human judgment. But... That's normally not what people mean. The part that they want to remove from the gospel is God's judgment of man. That needs to be in the gospel. If we don't understand our need, then we won't run to God for more mercy. Remember, God wants to take us further up and further in. He doesn't want us to just stay at this level of informed mercy. But this informed mercy is the crossroads in our journey. It's the catalyst. It's it's the change point. It's the question, what are you going to do now that you know that God is demonstrating mercy to you? Where are you going to go? Are you going to run to God? Are you going to say, God, I need more mercy? Or are you going to turn back And descend and say, God, I can do it on my own. The message of judgment is part of the gospel. And it is not a part that we can remove. It demonstrates our need for mercy. Each of us is already a resident and recipient of that universal mercy. Each of us now is also informed recipients of mercy. We know what is happening. What is our response to that, though? How do we respond to knowing the mercy that God is showing us? Our response needs to be humility. To humble ourselves. Who are we that God would demonstrate that mercy to us? And that is exactly where God wants us to be. God warns us of his judgment so that we can be aware of his mercy. This second level of mercy, this land of informed mercy, again, is not where we want to stay. It's the crossroads. We want to go further up and further in, but there's only one way into the next level. 
There's only one way to get into this next, more exclusive area, and that is full recipients of mercy. But that's where God wants us. God wants, us to, t- wants to take us from informed recipients of mercy to full recipients of mercy. God's mercy is revealed through his word and received through humble repentance. Look at how Nineveh responded. Verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Look what it says. They believed God and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth. Nineveh responded through humble repentance. Now, in this passage, there's going to be three things that we're not accustomed to in our day. One is fasting. The second is sackcloth. And the third, we'll see when we get to the king, is this idea of ashes. Each one of those is the idea of of humility. It's mourning for something. Sackcloth was an uncomfortable. It reminds us of our frailty, that this is not right. Fasting, how long can we go without food? Are we self-sufficient? Can we will ourselves to continue existence? No, we need, we have dependence on other things. When we fast, it reminds us of that. Later, we'll see this idea of ashes. Where do ashes come from? Something that was alive, but died and burned. And what is left is ashes. So all of these ideas that we see, we see that Nineveh humbles themselves. But look at what it says. First, they believed God. And then they repented. Both sides of those things put together. They believed God and they mourned for what they did. Now the next portion I think is, a faci- is fascinating because the author chooses to focus on the king of Nineveh particularly. Similar to what he did in chapter 1 when he looked at the captain. He talked about the sailors and then specifically the captain so that he could illustrate Jonah versus the captain. And he's going to do the same thing here. He's talked about Nineveh generally, but now he's going to talk about the king specifically. Look what it says. The word reached the king... And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published, and published through Nineveh. Now, here's something that I think is fascinating, that I think that the author of Jonah does. There's a parallel in chapter 3 between Jonah and the king. There's a parallel between what Jonah is doing and what, the, uh, and what ki- the king is doing. And the author shows that they are completely different. Even though there's, there's some close things, there's also a contrast. Look at this. The beginning of the passage starts, The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Then we see the word reached the king of Nineveh. Going back to Jonah. So Jonah arose, the king, and he arose from his throne. Jonah called out to Nineveh. The king issued a proclamation to Nineveh. Now, both of these seem pretty similar. 
But in comparing them, the author can show the contrast. Look at Jonah. The word of God comes to Jonah while he is probably still sitting in vomit. Chapter 2 finishes with Jonah vomited out on dry land. And then the next word is, and the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Jonah is at a low spot. It might not be as low as chapter 2, but it's definitely a low spot. If he's still got clothes after the storm and the waves and being swallowed, they're smelly, they're ripped up, they're full of salt water and vomit. He's not in a good condition. He is not in a high place of honor. On the other hand, the word reaches the king while he is on his throne, dressed in his resplendent robes of glory. Based on those two scenarios, based on that information, which person do you think is more likely to be humble before God? The person sitting in vomit or the person who is sitting on the throne of the most powerful nation of that time? Who would we imagine? We would imagine Jonah to be the humble one. And yet, we see in this passage that there's elements, there's certain clues that Jonah is not all in on God's mission. Jonah has not completely submitted before God. We don't have time to go into all of those reasons, but even in chapter 4 next week, we'll see that that's confirmed. Jonah had not yet submitted his heart to God. There was still this level of pride. But look at the king. The king in his lofty position, arguably the most powerful person of his day, Sitting on his throne in his resplendent robes, what does he do? He gets off of his throne. He removes his robes. He puts on sackcloth and he sits in ashes. The king humbles himself before God completely. Look at what the king tells his people to do. He gives them five different commands and then finishes with a statement. Look at what it says. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. What is the king demonstrating through his proclamation? He's demonstrating complete humility and repentance before God. Now, I know that if I don't address something, I'm going to get a lot of questions about this later. What, what is it that we need to address when we're talking about this? What's the deal with the animals? Why, why is the king calling for the, the animals to put on sackcloth and, and to be fasting as well? This does, I mean, did they sin? What, what's going on here? Now, we're going to go through this quickly so we can move on. I'll admit, I'm not 100% sure. 
But I'm going to show, share a couple of things that I think might be happening in this passage. The first thing, reason that I think he includes the animals is, again, the author is contrasting the pagans with the prophet. If you remember in chapter 1, Jonah did not contain the contamination of his sin. Jonah refused to repent, and therefore, not only was his life in danger, he put everyone else's life in danger. The Ninevites were in danger because of him, but the sailors were in danger. Jonah didn't care, though. Jonah didn't care how his sin affected everyone around him. But that's the reality of sin. Sin cannot be contained. Jonah didn't care. He was given opportunity and over opportunity to change that. But he didn't. Here, we see the Ninevites find out the judgment that's going to come to them. But I think that what the king is doing is he's seeing that his sin isn't going to just affect him. It's going to affect everything. Animals included. If God destroys the city, overturns the city, everyone, everything is going to be destroyed. But the second reason I think the king calls for the animals to be included is to show a holistic, a national repentance. That this is something that they as an entire nation are doing. Um, Several of you have pets at home or you've taken care of pets before. One of your responsibilities if you own a pet is to feed them, right? Hopefully that's not a surprise to anyone who owns a pet. Now, if you have a dog or a cat, what happens if you forget to feed your animals? Not for a long time. That, they die at that point. But, but for a short time, what happens if you forget to feed your dog? The amount of noise a hungry animal can make is astounding. Imagine an entire city of hungry animals. Imagine the sound that would be coming from them. Imagine the visual reminder of seeing all of these animals bellowing and dressed in sackcloth. The king is ordering that the entire city will be demonstrating humble repentance. Now, that might seem strange to us, but it's not that strange. Every nation has their own way of of demonstrating mourning. And next Monday, the flags in our country are going to be half-mast. Now, a country that doesn't use flags is going to say, it it would look at a proclamation, and the country will mourn by taking a piece of cloth and putting it halfway down a metal stick. That doesn't make sense to, to other people, but... It's a demonstration of something that a nation is doing. I think that that's the same thing that's happening with the animals. But let's continue. What else does he say? Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. This is what Jonah was supposed to do in chapter 1. Call out to God. It's what we saw the sailors do. The Ninevites are doing it here. They're calling out to God. And let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. Turn. Repent. Stop going that direction. 
But I think the way that the king finishes is fascinating. Does the king say, do these five things and it will guarantee that God will forgive us? We do this and God owes us. Name it and claim it. No. He says, do these things, but who knows? God may turn and relent. Now, now he's not saying, I don't know. Might as well try this. We got nothing else to do. No, it's a demonstration of this humble repentance. Look, do these things because we're supposed to do these things. But even if we do these things, God doesn't owe us. We can't demand that God forgive us. But what does God do? Look at verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. When God saw what they did, what did God see? God saw humble repentance. God demonstrates mercy in accepting humble repentance. We saw that last week. God wants us to grow in our smallness. God gives grace to the humble. But God also rescues them from disaster. God relented from the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Right now, as we finish this passage, I want you to reflect on your own life. Reflect on your own journey of mercy. Have you gone further up and further in? All of us are universal recipients of mercy. The fact that we are not in hell right now is a demonstration of that mercy because we are all universally condemned. But God's mercy in, in revealing his word to us allows us to be informed recipients of mercy. But there's the question, what do you do with that? There's only one way to get to that next level. That's humble repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way in. Because as we sang earlier, it's not that God is going to be a crooked judge and look away. No, all of that justice had to be poured out on someone. We can be full recipients of God's mercy because Jesus was the full recipient of God's wrath. If it weren't for Jesus, we do not have any of this mercy. But look at your own story. Reflect on that. Reflect on what God has done in you, in this story of mercy, this journey of mercy that is beautiful. Be overwhelmed by that. Be humbled by our need. but also be encouraged. Be encouraged in your task. What is our job? We are called to proclaim God's mercy to the nations. That's our role. That's our responsibility when it comes to mercy. We don't hold this back. 
We tell people. But we don't tell a partial gospel. We don't tell a fluffy, pretty gospel that removes the judgment of God. Do you know why? Because that's not a beautiful gospel. It's not a gospel that saves. We need to include those things. We need people to know that they are the recipients of God's mercy. We need to inform them so that they can be humbled before God and in humility run in repentance to God and place their faith in Jesus Christ. Now let me encourage you with that. We've already talked about this being our goal for this year, that this is an objective that we as a church need to grow in. Do we have a heart of mercy for the lost to share God's mercy? But look, look at this passage. The reason that Nineveh was saved was because of all the work that Jonah did, right? It was because, you know, he, he's been trained in specific ways of evangelism. It's because he did an awesome event that got all the Ninevites to come over. It's because he, he made sure that he had three points in his message and then an, an introduction and a conclusion. It's because he had really good PowerPoint, right? All of those are the reason that Nineveh repented, right? No. Do you know how many words his message was in the original? Five words. That's it. What does that demonstrate? It's God's power to do this. The miracle of the salvation of Nineveh is all God's. If we think about the miracles of, of the book of Jonah, if you were to ask someone, hey, what's the miracles in Jonah? Someone's going to talk about the fish. Someone's going to talk about the storm. Someone's going to talk about the plant at the end. The greatest miracle we see is God's mercy to sinners. And he, de he declares that message through a sinner. What does Jonah do? Jonah obeys and he preaches the word. That's all we have to do. Obey God and preach his word. God's going to do the miracle. You can't make anyone come to Christ. You, you don't have that power. God needs to call them, but God wants to call them through you. The last thing that I want to look at, though, is a reality check. The reality check for all of us. Because if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then you are a full recipient of God's mercy. The problem is that we are often, even though we are full recipients, we are often apathetic recipients of God's mercy. We ignore what God has done. We are not overwhelmed. We are not humbled. We are not encouraged in God's mercy. We're apathetic. Think of Jonah. Jonah is the recipient of God's mercy. God has even shown Jonah mercy before in how he dealt with Israel. He's used Jonah to share messages of mercy, and yet Jonah is here apathetic. He does not have a heart of mercy for the lost. Are we in that same position? If you're there, as I often am, this is what we need to do. When we find ourselves apathetic to God's mercy, we must look to Jesus. We must look to Jesus. Jesus is the better Jonah. Jesus did not go unwillingly to preach the good news. 
Jesus was the willing participant in God's mission. Jesus is the better Jonah. Look to Jesus. The other character we saw in this passage was the king. Jesus is also the better king. The Ninevite king got up from his throne, removed his robes of glory, put on humble robes, and sat in death. Our king arose from his throne, removed his robes of glory, clothed himself in humanity, came to this world of death. The Ninevite king did all those things because of his own sin. Our king did that because of our sin. When we are not overwhelmed, when we are not humbled by God's mercy, when we are not encouraged in our proclamation of mercy, look to Jesus. God's mercy is revealed through his word and received through humble repentance. This next song that we're going to sing speaks specifically of the mercy that God has demonstrated to us. Won't you stand and sing with us?